TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 20. For you, the listeners of the Bike Nerds Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Sarah, what book have you been listening to lately? I have listened to an oldie but a goodie, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Wow. Do I seem more charismatic? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, maybe the book's working. Thank maybe, you. Maybe if you've had to reread it, maybe it's not working. You know, I think there's, you know, something about, you know, self-awareness, just checking back in with yourself. So hopefully I learned new things. Got it. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM. Sarah, how have things been going? Things are fantastic. Yeah? We're chugging along. We've got some exciting things coming up. In Explore Bike Share World that oh, I will reveal in future podcasts that are Whoa. that'll be exciting to Will it be to breaking follow. news on the podcast? Yeah, there'll be breaking news. Yes. The scoop. The um, scoop. I was trying to make like a breaking news sound, but I don't know how to make it. <laughs> I was like, doo doo dee. I don't know. Beam, oh, beam, beam, beam. Yeah, just like that. All right. Um but yeah, no, things are really, really great. I have Trying to think of something really cool to say, but yeah, how's 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 July been in Memphis? I haven't been in July very long. Yeah, in Memphis, but it's hot and humid. But I have access to a pool and a bike that creates air conditioning as well. I'm fortunate enough to to work and live in places with AC, so that's better. You know, I haven't noticed a lot of like personal home pools here in the Boulder area. Um, Probably not as necessary. Well, there's definitely like community pools and I was riding my bike around on the 4th of July and I rode by one of them and it was packed. Like I don't, I don't physically understand how like a person could actually get into the water, into the pool. There were so many people there. But that's kind of like what a community pool is though. They're always packed. It's like, it's like magic. It's like you can always fit more people in a community pool and more band-aids. Yeah. I think to you probably you're probably right. You probably aren't necessary. There's so many like creeks and rivers here as well that people just get in. Like I've noticed, I'll be riding my bike along like a creek path, and there'll just be like a people hanging out in the water next That's to the nice. path. Yeah. So what's the most surprising thing about Boulder so far? Um, you know, I don't really know. It's I'm not sure. There's like a ton of like surprising stuff. I'm, I'm enjoying. Uh, Sort of the proximity to the mountains. Oh, so we've had this like this deer, this female deer, who I've sort of noticed all around the community. Like when we, the day that we were moving in back in June, she was like walking around while we were walking around the moving truck while we were unloading stuff. A couple days later, I saw her over at the the goat farm that's down the street from our house where they make homemade goat cheese. Uh. Uh, And then. 
Ethan and I were walking to the park the other day, and we saw her just walking down the sidewalk. <laughs> like, do you think she's like your guardian angel? I don't know. I no. I think she was. Was she actually walking on the sidewalk? She was walking down the sidewalk, and then we saw her with like three little deer, um, like three little baby deer. Recently, she was sitting down in our front yard. Um, and I feel the, like she's like these new Southerners need my support and guidance through this transition. Th- yeah, it's just kind of weird, like how like how much she's just sort of tolerated. People see her. And she's like eating all of their plants. I saw her over at the big community garden recently. And you know it's the same deer? It's the same deer. It's got to be. Have you named her? No. But Ethan will tell you that it's a white-tailed deer. And he knows about all the different kinds of deer now. Yeah, he's he's pretty up to date on animal species. Well, look at that. That's impressive. (laughs) Hey, I wanted to tell you something really cool because you just came back from Europe. uh, But I'm actually heading to Europe uh, later this week. and. And in true Kyle Wagonshoot's fashion, I'm going to Europe to go to Star Wars Celebration. Drum roll. So the, what does that entail? It's like the International Conference for Star Wars. And imagine like going to any other kind of conference where there's panels and there's discussions and there's exhibitors and there's like a main stage with keynote speakers. It's the same thing, but it's all about Star Wars. So who's the keynote speaker? So... Uh, there's going to be uh, the the new filmmakers, the new directors from the new films that are coming up. Rogue One's coming out later this year, so that its director Gareth Edwards is going to be there. Carrie and I got VIP tickets, fancy, so, yeah. So we're gonna we don't have to like wait in line for anything. We have like this free pass to get into whatever we want, and we also get to do uh, some really cool meet and greets. There's a there's a director who does a Star Wars cartoon. His name is Dave Filoni, and we get to do a little meet and greet with him. And he's drawn like some comics that I have, and he does awesome. like the yeah he does like the Clone Wars and Rebels TV show. So it's really it's really cool, and I'm I'm super excited. I've been like digging out memorabilia from unpacked boxes, trying to find it so I can take some stuff, yeah. and get some autographs. Are you gonna there. dress up? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's in London, so you know the the cost of like hauling stuff to London is you know a little expensive, and so. I think my Jedi robes would take up most of my suitcase. It's and pretty this, big. And this draws like an international audience. Yeah, yeah. We Carrie and I went to the one last year. It was actually in Anaheim, California. And, you know, like 100,000 people show up from all over the world. And this one's what? in London. Yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. I, like, take a ton of photos and video. I, like, can't really even, like, picture what it will be like. But that's so exciting. Yeah, I'm super I I I'm going to have a I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be more relaxed because we have these VIP tickets. Like I remember last year we were like running around a bunch trying to, you know, What are like the get people like? Like I have this very <laughs> like prejudiced view that like it's a bunch of socially awkward people um like, talking w- to their like like a bunch of like fanboy and girls. I wouldn't say that's like entirely out of the realm, but you know Star Wars is so big. There's also like a lot of like really like wealthy people that show yeah. up, right? And they collect things. Um, and you're not socially awkward, and you're going with your patient and lovely wife. Yeah. Oh, that was the cat. She's not going. <laughs> the cat is not invited. Oh, cat is this not is, invited. So, um, Dubrovnik, Game of Thrones is filmed in Dubrovnik. Yeah. But the new Star Wars movie. Yeah. That's coming out was also filmed in like the old city of Dubrovnik. Yeah, so they had yeah. like Star Wars tours awesome. and all of this like hype about the fact that Star Wars was filmed there. Very cool. Yeah, we're hoping to see some footage of that at the convention next week. What's your what are you looking forward to the most about the convention? Oh, 
just being in London, I think, for five days is going to be yeah. good. Um, Got to use bike share. Uh, the kids are staying at home with my mom. Nice. So it's Carrie and I's first vacation like in five years without the kids. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm just sort of looking forward just to getting away and kind of hanging out. Maybe snagging some cool, you know, European release action figures while I'm there. You make make sure to leave room in your suitcase. Oh, trust me. <laughs> There's going to be room in the suitcase. I've actually got another bag just in case. Oh, good. You're overly prepared. No oh, surprise yeah. there. Oh, yeah. So, hey, here we are, uh, episode 20 uh, with Todd Dresner. And Todd is a, is a filmmaker that actually reached out to us uh, after listening to our first episode with Obai Reed. Uh, he had been doing some interviews with Obai related to a, to a film that he's making called Ways to Go. And, you know, he wanted to just know if he could come on the podcast and talk about transportation and, you know, sort of his role as a filmmaker in, you know, sort of, you know, having a voice in the conversation and talking about, you know, some of the challenges that cities are facing. Um, and so I actually really appreciated Todd. I, felt, I found this conversation to be really insightful. I agree. Yeah, I like his perspective was different. I think he has done documentaries around a lot of topics and, you know, has a lot of other interests outside of biking and walking. And I really enjoyed kind of that larger view, kind of macro view of, of, of the movement. So I really enjoyed the conversation with Todd. And yeah. I look forward to seeing the documentary. I do as well. Um, if, any, if any of our listeners want to check out uh, the current status, it's you, you can do it at waystogomovie.com. Uh, it spells just like it sound. Uh, Todd is uh, still filming it and still making it, and he's looking for some donations. So if you want to help out financially, you can also donate uh, at the website. So with that, I think we should get into it. Let's hit it. So, Todd, before I mean, before we get into really sort of talking about ways to go, the the film that you're making about transportation, uh, just can you give us a little background about you? You know, how did you get into being a being a filmmaker? Well, I um, oh, it goes back. I don't know how far you want to go, but you know, like getting a video camera for my thirteenth uh, birthday and getting uh, friends over in the summer to make uh, silly movies, but um, you know, more seriously, uh, going to, I went to film school at, uh, Columbia, uh, graduate film school and, um, started working in, uh, corporate training video, which is, uh, more lucrative than documentary filmmaking, if somewhat less exciting. <laughs> um, what type but, of corporate training videos did you make? Well, I, uh, I still make them actually. We do a lot of work for, um, accounting firms and financial services companies. So sometimes it can be interesting stuff like uh, writing a script and working with actors and trying to do something uh, dramatic or humorous. And other times it's like uh, interviewing some accountants and trying to make that compelling. So, um, you know, that pays the bills because it's not actually that easy to make those things compelling. So uh, it's a strange skill, <laughs> but I seem to have it. Uh, but I also started uh in addition to working on those, working on documentaries and um, edited some other people's documentaries and then got into making my own. And my first one was about autism. It came out about five years ago. And um, and it, I think, has done pretty well in the autism community and made an impact there, which I'm happy about. And so then I uh, started looking for a new topic that I could make another film about and wound up with this one that I'm currently making. Is there a... 
is there is, is there any kind of uh, story along the way, Todd, as sort of becoming uh, film? I feel like you just condensed a lot of years into about a five second blurb. Are there any cool like stories, you know, sort of like coming up uh, through the through the ranks, through school, and then through uh, you know, sort of venturing out on your making your own films? Uh, anything sort of noteworthy that stands out as something that was interesting or unique, or something that sort of shaped you know how you sort of form and uh, you know, sort of create the stories that you're telling now through film? Well, I had some strange jobs. Um, I worked one summer for a company in Chicago that was made up of uh, Chinese people who were filming like a, a soap opera uh, about Chinese people in Chicago, which I think was going to air in some way back in China. Well, and That's amazing. Yeah, it was like, it was a crazy internship that I got because the production manager was an alum of my college and you know the whole cast or, and crew didn't speak English and then we had interns who were Americans and you know they would take us out to dinner after shooting and we'd go to Chinese restaurants that no American would normally be in and they would hand you food and just tell you to eat it and tell you yeah. we'll tell you what it is afterwards so that was how I tried pig's blood um, <laughs> which sort of has the consistency of tofu. Uh, it's it's not so bad. Yeah, no, that doesn't sound too bad. What was yeah. the plot line of the soap opera? Well, it was hard to tell because, of course, it was all <laughs> in Mandarin. Um, but it just seemed to be like, you know, following young people as they make their way in America. Uh, and I really, I have no idea whatever happened to it. Um, but it was an interesting summer. It didn't really affect my... Um, my filmmaking that I do now. Uh, but I think, you know, I make fun of some of the corporate work that I do, but one thing that it does is, is it lets you develop your skill in um, hearing different stories and, and finding the compelling nuggets in them and putting them together in a way that makes sense and that can be uh, uh, enjoyable to watch or, or at least not painful to watch. And... Um, I think that helped me in terms of certainly my last film was about getting a lot of different people's perspectives on autism and the history of autism and where autism is in the culture now and synthesizing those perspectives. And that's something I think I'm doing again on this film is trying to synthesize a lot of different perspectives. So in some ways, the the type of work you're actually doing doesn't necessarily matter. You, you can t- still develop a technical skill as you do it and then you can apply it to subjects that are more interesting to you so i've been able to do that fortunately what was kind of what got you interested in this new documentary um around kind of transportation what was kind of the tipping point where you were like i want to make a documentary about this uh well it started because i had to go do some work in boston and was traveling with the film crew so the only way that we could get our stuff there was to drive so um, going between Boston and my home in Brooklyn, um, we made very good time on our way back from Boston to Westchester County, right outside of the city, about two and a half hours. And you figure, you know, another hour and a half after that, you should be home. Uh, but because we hit such terrible traffic, um, it took like two and a half, three hours to get back. And this happened a couple times. And I just started thinking about, you know, cities are getting more and more popular more and more people are moving to cities 
is this what's going to happen in the future? We're just going to spend a lot of our time sitting in cars going nowhere as cities become more popular. And it occurred to me, maybe that's an interesting question for a documentary. And when I first started out, you know, it, it was different than what it's become. You know, I was thinking maybe I'll go spend a lot of time with traffic reporters and fly in helicopters and uh, have them talk to me about what they do, things like that. But uh, as I started doing research, it quickly became clear that that question, what are cities doing about traffic, uh, related to many other questions about cities and uh, who cities belong to and how we can make cities uh, work for everyone. And so the film kind of expanded out from that original question to get into a lot of other topics. Todd, do you find that's a that's sort of a common thread in sort of creative endeavors is that you sort of begin with this, with one question and sometimes the sometimes the story sort of goes into a, a new direction not necessarily different but is that is that pretty is that common amongst sort of uh, your experience in filmmaking? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think people. Uh, most creative people that I know don't start a project because they already know everything there is to know about it. Uh, you know, they want to learn things as they do work and they want to um, make interesting work. And it's hard to uh, do that if you feel like you already know everything about a topic and you have to go in with an open mind and just uh, to some extent follow where the material leads you. And um, that's especially true with documentaries. I mean, there is a misconception about documentaries that they should be like completely uh, journalistic and you're just there filming what happens and, uh, you know, it's just completely objective. I don't think that's the case, but I do think that uh, documentary filmmakers um, want to follow the material where it goes and, and, they start out not necessarily because they know the answer, but just because they're fascinated by a question. So as a follow-up to that, then uh, in some of the, some of the interviews that we saw on, on the, the sneak peek that you gave us, and also just, I think it probably in some of the dialogue that I sort of can assume kind of happened with some of your interviews, do you feel like cities aren't sort of expressing the fluidity that creative people you know who you know you're you're as a filmmaker asking a question and you're actually following the story rather than trying to answer the the original question that you answer ask you know do you find that cities maybe could learn something from uh the creative uh, ability to sort of go with uh a narrative that isn't necessarily one that they wanted to start with to begin with yeah i think that's an interesting question i mean uh it really depends on who you're talking to, but there's certainly some advocates of changes in cities one way or the other who have a, a predetermined goal in mind and they don't necessarily, um, they aren't necessarily flexible when new information comes in or when someone suggests thinking about it a different way. And I think, you know, we see that problem, not just in city development, but in all, all sorts of areas, mm -hmm. um, you know, but at the same time, time uh i'm not when i'm asking someone a question necessarily trying to influence them to change their thinking and i am actively seeking out people with different perspectives because what makes a film work is to have some sort of conflict um mm -hmm. so i'm not i don't view what i'm doing as advocating for someone to change sides but more just giving them a voice and trying to reveal like what's the um 
what's at stake here? What are the issues? Why are there people who feel passionately one way or another about whatever issue they're talking about? Um, I think that's more my role than it is to say, you know, you're not being flexible in your thinking. Todd, what surprised you the most? Kind of all of these stories that you've collected for this documentary, what was the most surprising conversation that you had? Um, well, you know, the, when you talk about biking to people, uh, to find out how many different ways people view biking, it, and it's biking, a bike itself is such a simple technology. Uh, it's relatively old technology and it's uh, easy to understand and its function is pretty obvious. And yet there are all of these different pieces of cultural baggage that get attached to a bike, uh, whether people view it as, you know, a symbol of environmentalism because it doesn't uh, pollute the way a car does or whether people view it as a symbol of gentrification or elitism. It's just, uh, you can have all sorts of conversations about these issues and um, it's just surprising that something that is on the surface as simple uh, gets itself attached to so many different um, perspectives or people look at it in so many different ways. And that obviously is an interesting thing for a documentary to, to say, why is this happening to a seemingly very simple piece of technology? Why is it happening? <laughs> well, I, I, I love cultural baggage by the way, as well. I think Kyle and I have a lot of conversations around what bike culture means and why there is such strong view about what the definition of bike culture is positively or negatively. And I love that. I think bikes do carry cultural baggage. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just uh, read a book by someone who isn't in the film yet, but maybe he will be, uh, called The Cycling City. By I think his name is Evan Friss. And it's about um, the popularity of bicycling in the 1890s. And uh, one of the things that he says at the end of the book when he's talking about why bikes got so popular in the 1890s and then almost immediately went away, uh, very quickly went away about 10 years later. He asks, why did that happen? And his answer is sort of that bikes got connected to, um, you know, what elite people did. It wasn't just for transportation. It was like to go out and show people that you had leisure time or, you know, that you could afford this great, uh, way to get around the city and that you could go, uh, you know, show yourself in a, in a public park. Uh, whereas in Europe where the popularity of bikes, uh, stayed much higher, it was viewed more as just a way to get around. Um, so it seems like going back to the very beginning, uh, bikes have been attached to these cultural ideas. And, you know, he says that one of the reasons that uh, it got unpopular in America is that, you know, other classes started using it and it was no longer a symbol of these things of being, having leisure time, being rich, being elite. And so people abandoned bikes and looked for other ways to be elite. And now, uh, you know, we're, we're about 120 years later and there's still these same issues going on around bikes. And mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting. And I think it's even more pronounced now because once, uh, once we went away from them in the early 20th century, the actual way that we can get around cities has moved so far away from 
being bike friendly, that it's it just keeps being harder to make it be just a form of transportation. It it, it keeps getting attached to these other cultural things, and um, you know, hopefully, eventually, we'll get to a point where maybe riding a bike is just riding a bike the way right. sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, Todd, before I watched the the little snippet of the film um, that you that you sent to Sarah and I in advance of the interview here, uh, I, one of my questions I was going to ask you, uh, you know, was why, why look at sort of this lens of cities and people and the connections and the relationships between the built environment and people's sort of well-being and quality of life. Why look at it through a transportation lens? Um, you know, what sort of, you know, you sort of explained, you know, you were motivated not necessarily by that sort of aspect that you sort of grew into that, but you know, why not, uh, why not look at this through like housing or land use or, or public health? Why, why do you think transportation is like the right, uh, lens to be sort of focused through for you? Well, I mean, I, I think, I'm sure you're aware that it's all related, of course. Uh, yeah. You know, um, highways, when they were developed, they obviously made the suburbs a much more attractive place for people to live because suddenly you could live outside the city, but you could still access it, go to work or go to entertainment in the city. And um, so it, it contributed to, you know, the, the, the rise of the suburbs. And uh, so... Transportation, of course, ties into land use. Uh, are we going to keep developing these suburbs and exurbs, which then require cars to get around? Or are we going to move back towards having people live in the city and have a more dense environment where you can get around by biking or walking or transit? Uh, it all ties together. I, I remember one conference I went to where um, a scholar who I think is now the um, Secretary of Transportation of Massachusetts said, uh, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to go 14 miles today. Like, that's not what transportation <laughs> is. Yeah. It's about, it's about like, I want to go to work or I want to go to a movie or go out to dinner. I want to access things. And where you live and the type of transportation you have depends on it. Uh, it affects what you can access. So, um, and I think, Generally, when people think about transportation, they do think of it as, oh, I'm just going 14 miles. They don't necessarily think about these other issues, but I do think they all tie in together. So I think it's worth looking at transportation and seeing how it's affecting these other things that are also happening in cities. Yeah, so tell me, uh, or just, just just remind me, what cities are featured in, uh, in the film? Um, well, I'm doing uh, several stories that hopefully... Uh, illustrate things that are going on uh, in transportation. One is uh, Syracuse, New York, where uh, they have a portion of Interstate 81, an elevated portion that goes right through downtown, and that is at the end of its useful life. Um, and so it has to come down, and they're having a big debate about whether to re rebuild it as an elevated highway or whether to bring it down and keep it down. Uh, so that is one story that ties into a lot about the history of highways mm -hmm. and about uh, race mm -hmm. um, and about, you know, what a, a city downtown is for. And then there's another story in uh, Chicago 
Expo, where I've been following uh, Obai Reed, who I know has been on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but for people who don't know him, uh, he runs a community organization called Slow Roll Chicago, which takes community bike rides on the south side and on the west side with the idea of both um, introducing people who wouldn't normally go to those neighborhoods to those neighborhoods and maybe uh, defying some common perceptions of what those neighborhoods are like, and then also to get people who live in those neighborhoods to think about biking as a way of getting around. Um, and then the third main story, which is not quite as developed yet, but is looking at uh, Uber. And, you know, I think there's a couple sort of um, possible solutions that people offer to the problems of getting around cities. And you might look at like the design side, which is should we bring down a highway and keep it down or should we make them cities more friendly to bikes or pedestrians. And then there's like the technology side, which is what Uber is, which is where they say, you know, let's create a shared network of cars and take private cars off the road and have people uh, get around with this shared network. And so I think part of the question of that story will be, is that kind of solution compatible with the other solutions that people are talking about, or is it in competition in some way? So those are the three main stories right now, although the film is early enough in its development that it's not clear exactly how those will all fit together or whether they'll all wind up in the final film, but um, that's what I'm looking at so far. Did you consider yourself kind of a transportation advocate before you started this documentary kind of planning and exploration process? No, not really. Um, I didn't really know a lot about the issues. Uh, I live in New York City, which obviously has uh, one of the great public transit systems in the country. Um, so I'm lucky that I don't have to have a car. Uh, and as a, a city dweller, I generally support things that make it easier to get around cities um, without driving. But I wasn't an advocate. And and I don't necessarily want to be viewed as an advocate uh, as I'm making the film, but more as just looking at people who are advocates and right. what they are advocating for or against and tell their stories. I think uh, that's more interesting than my inserting my opinion into the film because I, you know, my opinion is not necessarily an expert opinion. Yeah. But I think that's, that's one of the important things uh, the advocates are, I think sort of beginning to learn across the country is that it's not just about, um, you know, having an opinion, right. It's, it's about telling the story. And so, you know, I, I know you mentioned you don't really view the piece as an advocacy piece, but as a as a storytelling piece, I would I would sort of you know propose that it's serving a purpose within the advocacy community about talking about transportation in a way that isn't right nuts and bolts about how many cars can go down a road versus how many people can uh, versus you know the timing of the signal lights. You know, the, the, we sort of get out of this very functional and very uh, engineering and sort of technical experience with, with transportation and then really talk about, you know, how transportation, the policies, the funding, uh, the programs and, and the history of it, right. Have, have shaped people's lives for, for positive or for in, or, or in negative ways. You know, I'm, I'm thinking to the, again, back to the sort of the, the snippet that you provided to us about the story in Syracuse. And, uh, you're, you have some footage in there of, uh, what I assume was a, was a public hearing about the project, providing some information to people about what was going to be happening, what the alternatives were for the, 
was it was it I eighty one? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, you know, and there were several people in the audience, and then some of the featured interviews that you had, where people provided some very personal experiences about what the highway meant to them as as they sort of have lived in this neighborhood all their lives. Uh, and then it, clear, clearly I got the sense that some of those people had, had been negatively impacted. And then you, you, know, you sort of switched to uh, the story with Obai and, you know, we, and we had Obai on as sort of our very first guest on the podcast and, you know, his really powerful and moving story about, you know, coming out of uh, depression and the bicycle and transportation and the freedom uh, that that provided him, allowing him to sort of grow and now leading this, this very strong cultural movement in, on the South side of Chicago. I think, uh, I think it's a really powerful thing to, uh, thing that, you know, your film can do and, and advocates can learn from. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, I say it's not an advocacy piece and, but at the same time, obviously you're right. And, you know, it's hard to imagine like making a transportation documentary that says, we should really make cities great for cars. Like, I don't know what that documentary would be because obviously that's what we've, that's what we've been doing for years and years. So there's not a lot there to, if you were to try to make that documentary. So sort of the selection of the stories themselves, you know, I think indicates my point of view. Um, I, I say it's not an advocacy piece partially because I know that, um, you know, when you try to take it out into the wider world, uh, funders or distributors are will look at it and say, "Well, are you are you trying to represent some organization's point of view or mm-hmm. something like that?" Uh, it needs to get the widest exposure that it can to be like an independent film that I alone am responsible for shaping. So that's why I try to emphasize its. Uh, its role as telling stories, but obviously, you know, you're right. Telling stories is a very powerful thing to do. And, uh, hopefully I select the right stories that, um, you know, they can advocate for themselves and people who watch the film will ultimately, you know, start to think about what do we want our own cities to be like? So I'm curious. No, go ahead. Go Kyle. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to ask Todd about sort of his experience the last, six or seven years uh, witnessing New York City's sort of transformation, Um, the addition of protected bicycle lanes, uh, the addition and programming surrounding, you know, transportation safety in general, you know, as, as not just a a filmmaker, but as a New York City resident, um, how's, how's that uh, transformation sort of impacted you on a daily basis? Well, it's, um, I think there's been a lot of progress in the last, 10 years or so. Um, there are many more bike lanes. Uh, there's city bike, the bike share program here in New York. That's, uh, now expanding into the boroughs, Brooklyn and Queens where it hasn't, and, and to the upper, uh, parts of Manhattan where it hasn't been before. And there are just many more options for people. Um, and then at the same time, just watching, some of the discussion about all this stuff in New York also got me interested in making the film because if you were around here like three years ago, about the time that uh, Mayor Bloomberg's term was ending, there were all sorts of stories that you could read in the New York Times that would say when assessing his legacy, well, he's uh, on the one hand, he's created 
bike lanes and pedestrian plazas. But on the other hand, there are 50,000 homeless people. And it was just weird. Like, why are those the two hands? Like, why is the opposite of bike lanes and pedestrian plazas homeless people? <laughs> um, you know, so that gets back to this whole cultural thing of how we view these changes. And then, of course, I live not too far away from Prospect Park West, mm -hmm. which um, has had uh, a lawsuit that is still going on where they created a protected bike lane there um, that was has been, from my perspective, really great. You can ride all the way the length of Prospect Park, and there's a, a line of parked cars to keep you away from moving traffic, but there's a, a lawsuit from uh, a group of kind of not well, it's not well known exactly who's in it, of trying to say that this is an unsafe uh, bike lane. And I think ultimately the suit is going to go nowhere, but it, it, like many lawsuits, drags on and on. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it's, there've been many great changes that I think make it a friendlier city to get around. And then at the same time, there are these counter reactions that indicate that there's still, uh, ways to go to, to drop the name of my film and, um, <laughs> that there are, you know, well still, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that was subtle, I hope, uh, <laughs> you know, and that the, there's still these, cultural issues going on about how we view what are relatively simple changes of, you know, putting down a line of paint on the street. I can't remember the question that we interrupted each other on, Kyle. <laughs> okay. I was waiting politely for you to, to bring it up. But... <laughs> I appreciate the politeness. We just hit the natural 30-minute lull of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Have, so there is an arc, I'm making an assumption, um, it seems like with the documentary, kind of around shared mobility and how kind of there's these different pieces of transportation in the U.S. around biking and our highway systems and streets and then as well as Uber and kind of the technology piece. Do you see technology playing kind of a big role as we move forward in the U.S. around transportation? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. I think the question is like, who is going to be in charge of how we use that technology? Because what you have uh, with Uber and then the big car companies is uh, just private companies who are obviously presenting what they're doing as a, a public good, but whose charge is not necessarily to serve the public good. Uh, so one thing that I'm hoping to film uh, sometime soon is... Uh, some people who are trying to develop autonomous self-driving cars, which is probably the biggest technology change that's coming down the road, and it's debatable how soon it's coming down the road, but it's definitely coming. And there are scenarios where that kind of technology could be very good for a city and scenarios where it could be very bad. Uh, but either way, I think it's going to be a huge change for how we get around cities. So the question is, can a city... Uh, or a state or a federal government develop uh, a coherent policy to make sure that these technological changes are beneficial rather than problematic. And so that, I think, is an open question. I also think also how does the technology continue to work with the more sort of like analog technology? You know, how does it work with bike share or just your general bike lanes and and bike infrastructure kind of how does all of that end up hopefully melding together to create something that's integrated instead of silos of, of different options? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've seen some simulations of, uh, 
how traffic would move with self-driving cars. And, it, you know, you see these cars uh, zipping through an intersection one right after the other because they're networked together and they can talk to each other and they can be much closer to each other than a human-driven car without a risk of an accident. But you notice, like, they never stop. Like, when does right. the pedestrian or the biker go across the street? And um, so that's... Uh, I haven't talked to enough people to understand whether uh, or how the developers of that kind of technology are thinking about those questions. But that's the question that needs to be thought about, and, and not just by the private companies that are developing the technology, but by the governments that are responsible for implementing it. Yeah, and the neighborhoods that those vehicles will go through and kind of, yeah, how do they interact with people and people on just regular old bikes right. that aren't robots? Yep. That, I guess we'll is. all just become robots. Uh, that could be simpler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think Hollywood has solved this uh, problem for us. I'm thinking of like Minority Report or iRobot. This is all coming together. I feel like it's yes. all going to be... It's uh, all, Hollywood it's all, always leads the way to a better future. <laughs> yeah, it's all going to be fine until the killer robots start coming for us, I think. Yes. Right. But well, until then, then, we might as well be able to get around in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just... We'll just, uh, it's inevitable, so we're just going to sort of do what we can until until it comes. Yeah, right. lean in. That's funny. Uh, Todd, just to hear more on a more personal note, you know, is there, uh, are there filmmakers or films that sort of, you know, inspired you to sort of pursue this as a career? Are there, uh, are there you know, directors or, or anybody else that sort of are, have influenced you in some way? Uh, there's certainly documentaries that I admire very much and maybe someday would like to try to make a film that is half as good as they are. I, I think about uh, Hoop Dreams, um, which was about uh, high school basketball players and their goal of trying to make the NBA, and uh, which was just such a deep dive into um, very specific stories of, about particular people, but at the same time brought up all sorts of interesting macro issues um, and was so compelling that if it had been a script of a, a fiction movie, you know, it, it, no one would have believed it. Um, that's sort of a, a signal documentary for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I admire uh, Errol Morris very much, although he makes uh, different kinds of films than I do. Uh, he's made like uh, the fog of war and the thin blue line mm -hmm. um, and, has a, a technique of interviewing and just pushing to get to the core of a character. Um, so those are the first things that come to mind. Um, I think the best documentaries, they tell specific stories and through that they get to larger truths. So that's always what I'm trying to do in my own way on my own films. Yeah. And you mentioned basketball. Um, I, so are are, yes. you, are you are you a Brooklyn fan? Is that well? I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, so okay. uh, that's um, the home of college basketball, and yeah. so I grew up rooting for Duke, which uh, nowadays is obnoxious and like <laughs> rooting for the you Yankees. Paint, you paint your face, don't you? <laughs> well, the, no, I never painted my face, but you know, when I was growing up, Duke was not that good, and as is still the case today, many, many more people root for the University of North Carolina. Uh, so I never expected to be rooting for a team that 
won five national championships and that everybody hates. <laughs> uh, but I'm allowed to do it because I started in like 1979. Um, so uh, I do. I. I live about a 10 minute subway ride from where the Brooklyn Nets play and I've gone to see them play and would be happy if that was worth doing. But, uh, (laughs) well, you can, you can can just go when the Memphis Grizzlies play and then you can see some real good basketball. Yeah. Some real basketball. Yes. Well, um, I don't, I don't see the Grizzlies playing in the finals currently, but you know, (laughs) real talk. (laughs) I think, I think there were some injuries. That's, that's what it was. That's probably a problem. So, Todd, as we kind of wrap up, I have a big question. Do you know, like, now all of the great Chinese restaurants to go to in Chicago now? Like, do you have, like, an insider take on the best places to eat Asian food in Chicago? It's like over 20 years ago, so I don't know whether they're still there. I don't know whether I could find them if I wasn't there with, like, (laughs) a a native Chinese person who knows about them. Um, So... You probably would want to ask someone else if you uh, needed to find one. Uh, All right. I watched this. Well, thanks re- anyway. Yeah. Well, I watched this really interesting documentary, Todd, called uh, "The Search for General So," um, and, and it was about. Sort oh, of yes, I've, find- I haven't seen it. But find- I yeah, it's about finding the origins of General So's chicken. But what it, what it's really actually about is about the birth and sort of proliferation of Chinese restaurants across the United States and how that sort of happened. So if you're it, it just to sort of tie into Sarah's search for the best Chinese restaurant in Chicago, <laughs> uh, it's a really fascinating documentary about sort of how, you know, Chinese immigrants came to the U S and how they sort of in a very organized way, um, sort of s- spread out across the country, which, which is the reason why you have Chinese restaurants in Monroe, Louisiana, the same that you do in New York city in a lot of ways. Yeah, I have to see that. And I will say that these restaurants that I ate at with this very knowledgeable Chinese crew, they did not serve general Tso's chicken. They served, <laughs> you know, what Chinese people actually eat in China. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I won't, I won't ruin the documentary for you, but uh, that's a common theme in a lot of, in a lot yeah. of ways. Uh, so, hey, just just to wrap up here, Todd, can you give us a, a little plug about the film, Ways to Go? Where can people uh, stay informed about it? How can they sort of stay up to date? And, and you know, do you know when it's going to, uh, you know, sort of be available to the public and how? Well, I hope that it will be done uh, sometime next year. And I'm making it independently, so I don't know exactly how it will be available to the public. Uh, you know, I will certainly approach broadcast networks that show documentaries and that I think should be interested in the issues that the film is about. And I will apply to film festivals, both in cities where um, I I shot the film and that are interested in the issues of the film. So I hope it'll play there. Uh, I hope it'll have a life on the education market. Um, but all of that is up for grabs, just depending on um, who might be interested in distributing it. Uh, if people want to follow the news about it, they can go to the website, which is uh, ways to go movie.com. And they can also, uh, they, from there, they can uh, like the Facebook page. And of course I would be remiss if I didn't say that there is a big donate button on the website and we are trying to do some fundraising to actually get the funds to finish the film and to shoot as much stuff as we really want to put in it. And, uh, the film has a fiscal sponsor, so you can make a 
tax-deductible contribution. So if anyone uh, is interested in doing that, we would certainly be very grateful. Awesome. Yeah, we'll Absolutely. Do- and we'll make sure to, to plug that when we promote this podcast as well Great. and encourage everyone to, to obviously, everyone should have watched the, the clip before they even started listening to us. So. <laughs> That would be great. Yeah, Todd, will you come well, back? Will you come back on once the film is uh, being released? I certainly will, and hopefully, you know that is before the decade is out, <laughs> <laughs> and before the machines have taken over. Yes, yes. before we are robots. Maybe well, the machines Todd, will let us talk. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for taking time out of your day. This was a great conversation, and I really look forward to watching the documentary when it comes out. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Todd. Todd. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OAM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com. 